Today, we will be speaking with Dr. Riyad Sherif, uh, a graduate of IMD's 2001 MBA class, I'm happy to say, who after almost 25 years of a very successful corporate career in companies like Sanofi and Novartis, became in November 2017 the CEO of a biopharmaceutical startup called Oculis. Uh, under Riyadh's leadership, Oculis has been very successful on the product development side, but also on the financing side, as you closed earlier this year, a very successful oversubscribed Series C round. So, Riyadh, we want to talk about Oculis, but we also want to talk about the journey that took you there, including why you decided to exit a very successful corporate career to embrace a more entrepreneurial pathway. So first, let's talk about Oculis. The company is headquartered in Lausanne, and it is a clinical stage, sometimes you also say a late stage, biopharmaceutical company focused on, and here I'm trying to get it right, developing transformative, innovative, topical treatment for a range of ophthalmic diseases that, if untreated, can result in severe visual impairment, in some cases, in irreversible blindness. So there are pathologies like AMD, age-related macular degeneration, or DME, diabetic macular edema, that are currently being treated typically through injections into the eye, which is not simple, not cheap, and also not very pleasant for the patients. And you guys have found a way to develop eye drops that administer the drugs in a much more effective way than before, which obviously sounds more appealing than an injection in the eye. Tell us about it. Yeah. As you said, I joined Oculus in November 2017. Oculus was co-founded by an ophthalmologist and a pharmacist. And their dream, really, because the retinologist, the ophthalmologist, had patients who were not coming to the injections or patients who refused the injections. And therefore, they were not treated and they were becoming blind. And he teamed up with his colleague, pharmacist, to find a solution to address the hurdle of delivering drugs into the retina, which is in the back of the eye. And therefore, they worked almost 20 years to develop a formulation which is able to address all the ophthalmic barriers. And now we have, for the first time ever, a product which is going to the last trial before registration, to the pivotal trial to test an eye drop to treat DME, which is a diabetic macular edema, which is a complication of diabetes. Right. We believe in the world we have 35 million patients with DME. Even in developed mature world, less than 25% of these patients are treated. So it is an enormous unmet medical need to be addressed with something which is easy to deliver, accessible for patients. And my understanding is that over the last few months, you have reported very promising results in tests showing that mm -hmm. the eye drops are leading to measurable progress for the patients. Yes, we reported four. And four positive readouts in four indications. So we have two clinical stage assets. So when we say clinical stage asset, it means that the asset or the candidate are in human trials. Before human, they are preclinical. Right. They become clinical when it is human trial. So we have two clinical uh, stage assets in four indications, four programs. We were lucky to have a, a successful readout in the four indications. Uh, these four indications are pretty frequent diseases. So first is DME. The second is dry eye. The third one is uveitis, which is the inflammation into the eye. 
And the third is inflammation and pain after ocular surgery. In the world, we have more or less 20 million ocular surgeries per year. So this patient where we need to open the eye to treat a cataract or to treat a retinal disease, they need treatment after the surgery to reduce pain and inflammation. So in the four programs, our two clinical candidates were successful, which is great, which means that for our first asset, it is already going to phase three, which is the pivotal, which is the last trial before registration. For the second asset, which is, uh, we call it OCSO2, is going to phase 2B. Now, please allow me a potentially naive question on this. So I, again, the documents I read said the treatment was effective. Will you at some point have to show a comparative effectiveness to the current treatments, which again are much more invasive, mm-hmm. But will you have to show how you compare or is it enough to show that it works? Yeah. So the regulatory pathway to have registration is based on current alternatives vis-a-vis novel product incoming. Right. The regulator considers that an injectable is not a benchmark to an eye drop. Okay. So therefore we don't need to show equivalence or superiority. Actually injectables will not be impacted at all. I think our treatment will be able to treat patient earlier because in general patient wait because they don't like a needle into the eye so they wait. While they're waiting their prognosis is worsening. So with an eye drop the doctor will be able to have an early intervention to treat immediately at diagnostic and not waiting. And also the eye drops will be used as combinations with injectables in two cases at least, when the injectables are not delivering what is expected. And in 50% of the patient, injectables do not deliver what is expected. So we need something else. Or when the patient is not compliant with the injections, it is one injection every month. In average, for example, in the US, where we have a very good reporting system with insurance, in clinical trials, patients receive 12 and 10 injections per year, 10.3 injections per year in all clinical trials. In the real life, real practice, they receive 3.2 average per year. Wow. So that's a major non-compliance. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So therefore, we believe that we will be able to address these needs. Now, as I mentioned earlier, you've just had a very successful oversubscribed Series C financing round that generated almost $60 million. But even with that, you probably still have to be relatively selective in terms of the studies that, that you can fund. So, Would you say that you are in the business of developing new drugs from scratch, or are you more in the business of taking existing compounds slash molecules and somehow using your S&P technology to improve their delivery? Actually, what really drives us is to address major unmet medical need. We really start from what is needed today in the market. Our capabilities are being able to develop drugs. So therefore, we start with what is needed today into the market. And based on the unmet medical need, we develop new drugs. In fact, our two new drugs, one use SNP, the second one does not use SNP. And it was by design because our aim was to de-risk the portfolio. And in fact, the two drugs are both first in class. And this is what drives us. What drives us is really to be able to address major unmet need with innovative, transformative, differentiated product. We are not married only to topical. We might do something else in the future. Really what drives us is how we can respond best 
to major and met medical need. If it is topical, it's fine. If it is injectable one day, perfect. Now, this SNP technology, I, I thought was quite interesting, mm -hmm. and right now, obviously, is applicable to eye drops. Mm -hmm. Could it become applicable to other sorts of drops or other forms of pathologies? Yeah, so actually the SNP technology is a technology which allows a product to um, reach a certain pharmacological characteristics. And therefore, this technology can be used in systemic injections, for example, can be used in ENT, so other areas of the body. Our focus is OFTA. Now, we might partner with somebody else in the future To, to leverage SNP technology in other areas. So there's hope for other pathologies also. Yes. Now, why is Oculus headquartered in Lausanne? Of course, IMD has its base in Lausanne, so we understand that it's a great place to be and to live, but the cost of living is pretty high. Why did you choose to be in this area? I think Switzerland offers many benefits. First, it is in the middle of Europe. Second, uh, it offers predictability. It is a stable country. In business, we like stability because we have already surprises in business, so we don't like other surprises. I think there is a talent pool, which is, which is great. There is a very positive ecosystem with IMD, EPFL, SHUV as well, the hospital. So all this benefit, biotech at least, and pharmaceuticals. Now, Rian, I'd like to focus on you for a few minutes. You're a doctor. You were born and raised in Algeria. And after studying medicine and becoming a doctor, uh, somehow... You didn't practice medicine, and you took a business track almost immediately. What led you to do this? Actually, in fact, I always wanted to do a business. Okay. I was in a family where the doctor was almost prerequisite. So my grandfather was a doctor and so on, so I did medicine. And I learned a lot in medicine in terms of managing uh, teams, managing emergencies. On top of a science, it is a very good training. Now, as soon as I finished medicine, I wanted immediately to go to business and I did the business school. And I felt that the combination between the science background and the business background will position me in a very strong position in pharmaceuticals. Now, this led to more than 20 years of a very successful corporate career that took you in many parts of the world, including Europe, North Africa, the Middle East, Latin America, Canada. To what extent did you consciously manage this career? Did you seek some assignments or avoid others? How consciously crafted was this? I think uh, I have to say I was lucky to be in companies like Sanofi or Novartis, where I truly was able to manage proactively my career and go where I felt I will learn something or there is a business challenge and I would like to be part of solving it or there is something to build. And these are perhaps my three drivers. But I was very lucky, I have to say, in both companies to be able to proactively manage it. Now, one of the key moments, of course, is when you leave your job as president of EMEA region of Alcon, which was Novartis's division focused on eye care and a pretty big business in its own right, and this is a, over 10 billion revenues globally, to become entrepreneur in residence at Novartis Venture Fund, which sounds like a pretty dramatic change. Was this for you the start of a transition out? What led you to such a big change? I mean, president of EMEA for a very large organization to entrepreneur in residence. Yeah, no, it was a big change. I was coming from a position where I have 5,000 people reporting into the organization to me, uh, $3.5 billion revenue, 76 affiliates, so it was a big organization. At that time, what happened actually is Novartis decided strategically to split 
Alconin 2 device on one hand and pharmaceutical on the other hand. Right. And they had a few alternatives. One of them was to come back to similar position in Novartis Pharmaceuticals, or one of them to do something else. In 2009, I already set it up a company. I was, uh, how you can call it, intra-entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. I set it up a company which is called Synergium, which is actually today the first vaccines company in South America. And I felt perhaps it was the moment to move to the startup world. I always wanted to move at one point of time to the startup world. But I didn't know how VCs operate. It was totally new for me, completely new. So I asked an artist to join the VC uh, NVF and to learn what they do and then we see after. What happened a few months after, I realized that actually I liked operations and with my boss, I said, listen, I really would like to come back to operations. He said, listen, you, you are an expert in ophthalmology, find the company which you really like and we will finance it and you will become the CEO. And this is real, <laughs> this is what happened. In fact, Oculus came to Novartis Venture Fund for an investment. Because I spent time in ophthalmology, they asked me to lead the whole process in terms of due diligence and so on. I did a full due diligence, technical due diligence and so on. And the conclusion was, this is an interesting investment. And then we decided to invest and NVF said, and you will take Riyadh as the CEO. Now, speaking of investors, I noticed that you have on your website at least 12 of them. Now, you raised about $100 million so far, but you could have probably had less than 12 investors. So what led you to, to this decision of having more investors? Is this better for you? Is this easier? What are the costs and benefits of having more investors rather than less? I think there is a benefit, a big benefit, actually. First, we have only professional healthcare global investors. Okay. So they know this business. This is what they do. We do not have any agnostic investor. And what I discovered, I have to say in my this three, four years experience, is actually beyond the cash, which is of course important, bringing new investor who brings expertise, know-how, experience, network, has huge value. Okay. And I have to say, I'm extremely pleased with the group of investors we have, because differently, but each one of them bring something to the table on top of the cash. So therefore, I feel that we are a small team, but actually our investors sit in the board and bring value to the board in terms of strategic guidance or experiences they saw elsewhere and they shared with us and so on. So it's good to have a solid investor base. Interesting. Yeah. And no competition between them, no jockeying for position? No. Okay. At least not in front of me. <laughs> okay. Coming back to you, let's assume that one of your classmates from 20 years ago calls you and says, Riyad, I heard things are going really well for you and I'm thinking of pursuing an entrepreneurial um, venture myself. What would lead you to encourage him or her? What characteristics are necessary to be successful in the transition that you've been operating? Yeah. I think to be successful as an entrepreneur, you need to work a lot. You need to accept that you need to work a lot. You need to be resilient and you are here to solve issues and problems. And you have more problems than good news. You need to be able to have a strong network. You need to be able to communicate. You need to be able to sell constantly your company to investors because you do not stop selling it. But in the same time, you have a fantastic freedom to do what you believe right for your company. So therefore, if you want to 
be somebody who works a lot, is very resilient, fight all the time for the company, build solid network, solid ecosystem around him or her, and have the freedom and live well with the freedom because the freedom comes with risks. You, you are not within a box. You are, it's open. Also more uncertainty. More uncertainty, exactly. If you like this, then it is a great position. If you don't like it, which is totally fine, actually, it is not like bad or good. It's just a different framework. Then perhaps a, a great company is good. Personally, I really do not regret the fact that I spent 20 years in big companies. Okay. I think what we do not realize is we learn a lot in big companies. We are surrounded by experts in each function. And therefore, I truly thank the big companies I spend my time, not only for the job, but also for the learning I got from these years. And I think I would not have been the person and the CEO I am today at Oculus without these 20 years in big companies. So my recommendation actually is big companies are for the experience, for the learning. But one point of time, if you want to do things by yourself and to test something and to take some risk, you can do it. How important was it to be a subject matter expert? Could you have done something in a different industry? Or if in the healthcare industry, could you have done a pathology that you didn't know about? Do you need some subject matter expertise to be a strong entrepreneur? I think you need to, to know the business. I think not knowing the business is not an option. And even further, investors will not invest on a team because they invest on a product, but they invest on a team as well. Because their belief is that if the product does not work, if they have a good team, the team will be able to turn it around. Therefore, being expert in what you are doing is important. I would have been able to do it in the rest of healthcare, but not outside healthcare. Now, looking at your bio, I actually noticed that over the years and alongside your full-time job, in these two large organizations. You also had some extracurricular activities. You were serving on the board of this or you were an advisor to that. Why did you choose to invest time and energy in these other activities? Yeah, I always did it. I think for me it's a part of contributing to the society where you are or the ecosystem. The other part is really building your network. And you cannot imagine how much it is crucial when you are a CEO who is basically a position where you are alone. Having a strong network where you can call people, ask them for help for their experience and so on is of high value. And so the network, of course, you developed in part through your quote-unquote day job, but also but you also developed through these other exactly. activities. So this is something you would recommend. Totally. Okay. Totally. Now, the company has been growing yes. and you've been beefing up the leadership team. Looking at the team, they do look quite diverse, gender-wise, nationality-wise, age-wise, different personal trajectories. How much of this diversity is by design yeah. or it just happened? My only focus when I hire somebody is competence. It is the only focus. Of course, integrity is the first and then competence. And I 100% focus on competence. And actually what you realize is naturally you end up with a diverse team because competence is everywhere. So I truly didn't do anything by design. Uh, I know we have a diverse team. Many people and many investors actually ask me, what did you do? Because in our other portfolio companies, we don't have this. Right. I say, remove all the preconceived ideas. Just don't think about them. Focus on competence. And you end up with a diversified team. Now, Having a diverse team, is that more challenging? How does this manifest itself? Is this a challenge for you? It is not a challenge. However, I am personally a big believer in 
good decisions are a result of disagreement. I am very happy, actually, when somebody tells me, Riyadh, I don't agree with you, because at least it helps me to see things from a different angle. And my experience is that the final decision is always better. So therefore, I live totally well with this situation where when somebody tells me, Riyadh, actually, I see it differently, I say, great, tell me, how do you see it? Actually, this is interesting as I'm listening to you because we often say this indeed also at IMD. We say that often what we do is we help leadership teams to diverge first before converging. Because in many organizations, especially in, in large ones, it is not easy for people to diverge. There is this premature closure. Exactly, yeah. But this is something that you said, I've always been like this. I think so, yeah. I like it, actually. Okay, interesting. Now, the company has been crossing some important milestones, and again, it's growing rapidly. Is your role already evolving, already changing? Yeah, my role evolved since the beginning. So the beginning, we were like 12 people, eight in the lab and the rest in the office with one asset, one indication. Today, we are 25, four indications, and in the end of the year, we'll be 35 and six indications. So my role evolved a lot. And I need to adapt on one hand, but more than adapting, I need to proactively envision the next cycle and prepare it. Because the company of today is different from the company of next year. So my role is to proactively manage upcoming cycles and to prepare the company in terms of competence, capability, structure, footprint, and so on, to be successful. So how I organize myself is ask my team to focus on day-to-day -day or the next six months or 12 months, maximum 12 months. I don't want them actually to do 12 months and to deliver what we have in our plan. But my role is to have an oversight of what we are doing today, but to think about next 24, 36, or five years and what we need to do today to be ready to succeed in the future. So my role evolved all the time, and I really love it because of this uh, evolution. But that means you need to be relatively mindful of not being attracted too much into the day-to-day -day and keeping the trains running on time. Yeah, I think the most important in, in the role I have is to be able to zoom in and zoom out all the time. So you need to be able to go into the details of the details and to understand them and to know what is happening. You are responsible in the end of the day. This is perhaps the difference of a big company. The big company, you have big teams and they are responsible, so you can step back. Here you need to zoom in all the time, capable at least, to zoom in on the time and zoom out also all the time. And this is perhaps the characteristic of working in a startup, is to be able to know the details, but also to have a, a very helicopter view and long-term view about what you need to do. Is this a skill that one develops or does it come naturally? Most probably both. I have a very strict discipline in terms of managing my time. Extremely strict. I do simple things. I don't accept meetings if, if I don't have an agenda and I don't have a goal. If I need a meeting of 15 minutes, I don't block my agenda an hour. I do these very simple things, which allows me to find time to think about how I should prepare Oculus for the future. Now, you mentioned a very rapid growth in terms of the number of indications. In the pharma industry, sometimes it takes 10 years to get new drugs. How do you manage the, on one side, the curiosity and, and the interest in 
finding new solutions with the need to retain enough focus to be able to progress rapidly. Yeah. So basically, um, in the company, we established two work streams. One is execution. And execution, in my mind, is if we say we need to deliver this, we need to deliver this. On time, the right budget. And so this is execution. And execution for me, for example, in the sixth indication, we have four which are execution. They are approved. FDA, which is the US regulator, is supporting us. We need to execute. And the, the second work stream is transformation is how we transform this company, and we were discussing about it in the beginning, about small, originally Icelandic, topical company with one asset to cutting edge of the global company. And this is the transformation phase. And the transformation work stream is how we enrich our pipeline, how we address other unmet medical needs, and how we finance them. And are these different teams or are these the same teams sharing their times? I tend to separate the teams because I want them to be focused. So the execution team is one group and each meeting I ask them, tell me about execution, show me your dashboard, where are you? I go into the details and transformation in another team. And I ask them the same questions. You already started hinting at this. One of the questions I wanted to ask you is, what's the plan going forward? Is the plan to develop an independent global company, or is the plan at some point to grow the company enough to become a very attractive target for one of the larger players? Yeah, I think our plan, at least my plan, is to develop a standalone, solid company which is able to grow and to deliver sustainable growth and profit. Okay. This is really my only goal. Now, if one day we have a partner who is interested to partner or to do something else, we will be always open. But you will be attractive only if you can do it alone. If you cannot do it alone, you are not attractive. This is why I don't ask myself about this. I'm just focused on building profitable, successful company. Now, in light of the very solid results that you got from your clinical trial, the promising S&P technology, do we already know that Oculus is going to be a great success or are there a few must-win battles and a few potential pitfalls that you still have to overcome? Yeah. So as you may know, in pharmaceuticals, till you didn't finish all your clinical trials, you don't know because this is biology. So therefore, you have always a risk till approved. And this is why in our transformation work stream, we are working on enriching and broadening our pipeline and going to major unmet medical need, going with innovative and differentiated assets to be able actually to manage your risk at the portfolio level. In terms of clinical trial, you just need to do them perfectly well with the highest quality possible. Now, if it works, great. If it does not work, this is biology. But as a company, the only way to de-risk your clinical trials is you de-risk it at the portfolio level by having a broad portfolio. As I'm listening to you, one of the things that strikes me is the discipline, the sharpness and the discipline. You seem to be very clear on who needs to do what when. You want to focus people on specific responsibilities. You sound very disciplined and very sharp. I'm a big believer in focus. I think if you are focused on something, you tend to deliver better results with higher quality. And I'm a big believer in being accountable and having also a very specific team managing a specific task. I have two processes in my mind. One is I reflect, I think, 
But as soon as a decision is made, it is a decision. We don't come back. We don't come back at all unless there is a reason. So, for example, when we decide something and somebody in the organization comes to me saying, I I want to do this, my first question, I'm not interested actually about what he or she wants to do. I'm interested, what happened? Is there anything different? No, we don't change. Focus and deliver. If something changed, then we reopen and we discuss it. But you need the discipline decisions. Yeah, once it is decided, it's over. I had a pharmaceutical client many years ago who said we can only start having a good discussion after a decision has been made. And I think you've probably seen this, maybe not in the two organizations you worked for, but it sounds like you have really solved this and saying, look, we talk, then we decide, and then we do. Exactly. I have a process where I would like the process to be totally unconstrained. And we discuss about everything, and we brainstorm, and we consider everything, and then we select what might make sense, and then we take a decision. As soon as the decision is taken, we need to move to execution. And execution means discipline and focus. Again, as we were saying, some of the pathologies that you're addressing are pathologies that a growing number of us might encounter sometime in our life, and so we're very much rooting for you. Thank you very much for your insights, and best wishes to you and to Oculis. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. To hear more such interviews as soon as they come out, click subscribe or follow wherever you're listening to this. You can also find a range of forward-thinking analyses, business intelligence and insights in our new magazine and content ecosystem called I by IMD. You will be able to register by clicking in the link that appears in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for listening and until next time.